Hey, I'm here with John, and today we're going to talk about Karl Barth's doctrine of election. And uh, we were just discussing this, that if you were going to read a section of Karl Barth that is perhaps the most significant uh, part of the dogmatics, it is this discussion in uh, part two, volume two of the dogmatics, that uh, he is, uh, we don't want to say being original, but he, in the context of a reformed theologian, I think is going back rediscovering a an orthodox understanding of election or predestination. And so this is key. And with Bart's explanation, I think we can get a handle on this doctrine that has caused so much confusion uh, for people, and yet is should be a place of, of hope and uh, clarity as to what uh, is occurring in various uh, of the epistles in the New Testament. But John, can you give us a bit of background then of why this conversation uh, is significant and what Karl Barth is doing? Okay, yes. Yeah, I think that uh, Bart does have a key insight. And um, I mean, as we were just speaking before we started, it's not that I, I don't want to take away from the originality of what he's doing, just simply to say that mostly what he's doing stands over and against a Reformed perspective or a Calvinistic perspective on what is predestination. Um, but even more than that, you could almost say that it stands over and against what predestination had meant from the late medieval times through the modern period. Uh, that's, I mean, there are, of course, going to be exceptions, so we don't want to say, state that too strongly. But Karl Barth, just a little background on him, is a Reformed theologian, and he was a pastor. And so a lot of times his concerns for things aren't simply uh, abstract. They come out of a place where how do we preach the New Testament? How do we preach Jesus Christ to the people, so the common people, so that we'll, they will understand the context of his early work is that he finishes, uh, I think, what would be the equivalent probably today to a master's degree and then finds himself preaching in Soffenville, uh, Switzerland, which is a little mining village. And he stays there for 10 years, and that's where he begins to write his uh, Romans commentary that shakes up everything, because he's had a falling out with Protestant liberalism, and especially the Protestant liberalism that is within the Reformed and Lutheran traditions. Uh, that's pretty much all of Germany uh, that's, you know, in that sense that's not Roman Catholic, and they didn't, wouldn't, of course, fall under the same categories or the same way of thinking. So Bart's having a strong reaction, and a few things that he wants to do is to take the Bible more seriously. He wants to um, take God's judgment more seriously, so that rather than we as or the, or the people of his day being 20th century theologians, looking back through history and ultimately finding a Jesus who looks a lot like them, or rather a, a Bible that could be judged based off the criterions of their own time, uh, Bart wants to reassert uh, God's judgment on us, that God has broke into the universe, and it's his yes and his no is what matters. So God says a yes, of course, to the things that are redeeming uh, about our lives and says a no to what is sin and what is evil and to what is death. Um, and then it is up to us to, of course, conform to uh, God's will, and we only do that by God's grace. So there's a lot of reformed, th uh, good reformed themes that are going to run through Karl Barth's work as well. You know, he's 
uh, definitely going to place a huge emphasis on grace. However, one of the things that he hits up against is that the Reformed doctrine of predestination, the election, which is sort of the main doctrine for Reformed theologians, just as um, justification by faith alone or, uh, would be for the Lutherans, um, Bart's going to say the problem with the Reformed notions up until this point about the doctrine of election is they just don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ, which is a pretty big indictment when you think about it that way. And maybe this is a in telling the story of, of Bart, and the I think that Bart would locate his entire effort then as a pastor uh, that he's in, in fact breaking theology down to a kind of practical realm. And I like what you said, or, or the, that it should be emphasized, that a part of the problem that he's found, I think, both in theological liberalism and that he's discovering in uh, uh, Calvinism is its abstractions. And, and you're hitting upon it right now that, uh, that the abstractions uh, leave not only humanity out of the equation, but even the humanity of Christ. And so it, it is a, a flowing out, out of someone who's preaching and trying to, I think the his congregation in the village there was primarily working class. And so in many ways, he, had, he, he felt his education had in fact made him inadequate to the task of preaching. And so I think he's laying a theology then that will be eminently practical. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment. Um, and so those abstractions, of course, come from a theology that are formed at a time that we've talked a lot about in the past podcasts. Um, Calvin is primarily thinking about what is logical in terms of God's eternal decrees. So uh, he's envisioned God in terms of power uh, and a power that is absolute or overlaps within the realm of human power. So that if God has decreed that people are going to be saved, how is it that not everybody's saved? So it must be that God has also decreed that some are going to be damned. And that's Calvinistic double predestination, just like that. Uh, Bart's hitting up against that and saying, well, the problem with that is you have an eternal decree about salvation that completely leaves out the life of Christ, completely leaves out the cross, the atonement, the resurrection, uh, it doesn't matter at all. We've, Calvin has essentially framed up salvation in terms of the election as just being what God wills to do versus what God wills not to do. And one might point out here that, and, and you might disagree with me, John, but I think that uh, Calvin is building on Anselm's uh, doctrine of divine satisfaction in which Anselm, not just in that, uh, not in just Curtis Homo, but in uh, his uh, picture of ontology and his you know, on, uh, uh, ontological argument, is throughout talking about uh, a city, 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 that he's going to create the parameters for that necessity in law, in logic and reason, and even numerically. Uh, and I think that Calvin then is, in a sense, the heir of that sort of uh, notion that you're going to talk about God in terms of 
what you know, law is really a tautology in terms of humanity of just power, and so maybe that's uh, that background. I you know whether Anselm. I mean, in many ways, Anselm's more acceptable in, 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 uh, than Calvin, but Calvin is the heir of a tradition uh, that I think is, is going to lead him to, uh, uh, to, to, to this notion of predestination. Uh, yeah, for me, I guess I'm not uh, quite willing to commit myself to any position on Anselm as of yet. And this comes from other podcasts that we've done just because of the way that I'm reading the philosophical tradition is to say that Anselm would not, uh, that Anselm wouldn't have subscribed to any sort of university of being. So that when Anselm uses a metaphor, it truly is a metaphor um, versus Calvin has God acting within a chain of causality uh, that is of the same order as the way we would act. Um, So I'm just, I'm not quite, convinced how to read Anselm as of yet. (laughs) But I think your point is still well taken, and that that is Calvin is thinking in terms of necessity and thinking in terms of absolutes. And um, uh, that's actually what gets Karl Barth's going to bring this directly up, and he's going to abandon any kind of absolute eternal decree because he realizes that in some way, it's not um, orthodox. Really, the Trinity is going to get shoved by the wayside if you do this as well, to say that in the beginning, God had a decree on how he's going to act and how he's not going to act. Because to even assume that sort of thing, which isn't a part of the revelation of Scripture, is to say that we're going to fill in the gaps because we can know how God's foreknowledge works. And I think those are the types of problems that you run into Calvinism, but it's because Calvin is working with nominalism and voluntarism um, in terms of a university of being that would assume that God is working on the same plane of existence or the same plane of being that we are. Uh-huh. And um, I just, I, I think though uh-huh. there's a lot of faulty assumptions there that date at least back to the, the, you know, 13th century. I'm not for sure what might be there uh, other places before. Yeah, I'm, I realize I'm kind of uh, uh, alone in, in although uh, Gregory Schufrader does this, a similar thing. Um, that is that, that and, and actually agreeing with, and I don't want to dis- detract us and get, get off into Anselm, but continue with Bart. Um, but the, the, the idea that, uh, in other words, uh, of nominalism and that, that agreed that uh, Anselm then is working in a, in a di- very different frame of reference. Um, but you can find his, in his argument that he's setting up the very notion that the number of angels fallen from heaven give us, gives us a numerical value of uh, that he begins to describe it in terms of a causal exchange between uh, the persons of the Trinity. And I think that uh, that is the, the framework that maybe Anselm would step back and say, and he does, by the way, he steps back and says, well, and this is just a, uh, an illustration, a metaphor. But I think by the time we get to Calvin, that notion of being able to stand back and say, there, this is, you know, 
a, a human or a partial explanation. No, what we're getting in this picture of, of uh, that Calvin gives us is a, a kind of singular approach to the New Testament that crowds out any alternative explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is certainly, um, it is certainly true that most of the time in ancient, the ancient theologians or the early uh, medieval theologians would would see things in the same way that even modern people do as, as perhaps posing a problem. Like they can see where somebody might conceive of, I mean, I'm thinking of the problem of evil. They can conceive of how the existence of evil in creation could pose a problem for how somebody might believe in uh, an omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-knowing and good God. But their response is usually, uh, and I I would say always, it's just, you know, I haven't read everybody, um, is most of the time at least not to fall into the trap of making God uh, or reducing God to um, a chain of efficient causality. And I, I think this is just the strength of an earlier tradition that was able to think in a, a more multifaceted way that there are final cause, formal causes, final causes, efficient causes as well. Um, but that there were ways of thinking in which God did not fall into a dualism of either he works this way or he doesn't. That usually there's an acceptance uh-huh. that theology at some level is always apophatic in the sense that God is of a different order and regardless of what we say, it's not going to correspond to how God works or who God is exactly. And that usually, for the most part, uh, theology was done, um, you know, really within the context of the spiritual life or the contemplative life, uh, so that prayer and and the point being that we would become more like God rather than we would figure God out. And that changes at some point. Um, so it's not to say that maybe some of the same ideas aren't present before, but that's certainly a, a shift that occurs. And uh, I think a strength of what Karl Barth's there, doing is, in the church dogmatics in general, is to say, and this isn't original to him even uh, in the modern age, because, you know, of all people, Schleiermacher sort of says the same thing, and that's that when we do theology, it needs to be in the context of the church. So the goal of theology isn't... Uh-huh just so that we might know God unrestricted, uh, but rather that the church might be transformed and grow into uh, the future that God has for us. Yeah, there is a, a and uh, the, the, there is a kind of ironic uh, understanding that, that is present in a person like Anselm that, uh, in, in, uh, that's obvious in his discussions and debates. That by the and, and I'm saying this to say that what the the thought that we're describing in Calvin's doctrine of predestination, I think, is tied also to uh, the the image. You know, here is a lawyer. Here is a, a guy who's going to burn people at the stake for disagreeing with him. Here is uh, someone whom for whom there really is no uh, counter voice. And I think that in it, it is particularly here uh, that the, the great tragedy of you know uh, what, what which Bart is 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 recognizing of uh, the unfolding of this understanding in in uh, the twentieth century 
that in some way theology has has relegated itself to abstractions and uh, a, a logic that uh, is, is in fact doesn't enter into or can be relegated to outside of the human you know ethics and and mm-hmm. uh, lived reality. Yes. So, you know, but don't let me distract. Oh, no, that's okay. I was going to say, actually, that's a good point, because even in the beginning of the dogmatics, you know, Bart considers is theology a science. And in one sense, he's willing to say, yes, that's an okay way of thinking about it. But the problem, at least since the Enlightenment, has been that if you relegate theology to a science, you're putting it on the same footing as just any other science. Uh, that would be able to empirically study its object. And Bart says, well, that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in, in that sense, I think this goes back to his general idea of uh, crisis theology. You know, it's crisis with a capital K. Uh, but as I was told, all German nouns are capitalized, so the, <laughs> that doesn't mean as much. Uh, crisis, though, isn't, it's not the equivalent of our English word, is my point. So that crisis for him is that Mm -hmm. God's judgment enters in and puts our false ways of doing things. I mean, you talk about this a lot that, you know, we have we can ground our whole world uh, as a social construct within a lie. And Bart says, well, God's judgment enters in and presents a crisis for that, uh, that that won't last or that that can't carry on. So God's judgment is always a destroying uh, has a destroying element and a rebuilding or an uplifting element. We're both destroyed and uplifted at the same time. And that uh, factors directly into his doctrine of the election, which is to say that he, you know, he talks about Jesus Christ as both the one who is electing and is elected. So that Jesus is both uh, God's yes and God's no to the world. Um, and that, we find even as that election applies to us, a yes and a no. And um, I think that's an original way of putting it, at least, that makes a lot of sense. But let's uh, let's break it down, why that is significant and why it is a departure from predestination as we have it in Calvin. And that, you know, I think you can spell this out, that in Calvin, predestination is, is something that is handed down from the un, you know, uh, impenetrable counsels of God in His eminence, but what, uh, but what Bart seems to be doing, well, it is what he's doing, is that he's uh, showing us that no, actually, predestination in both uh, in Christ, both as subject and object of that predestination, that predestination is not a dark mystery in which we cannot, and this pertains, you know, this is actually pertains to human subjectivity because that's the great, you know, a strain, I think, uh, that almost is, you know, literally uh, gives rise to psychological problems in Calvinism is you never know where you stand with God because how can you know if you're one of the elect? And, and And so explain then how this opens up or what Bart is doing with it. So with Calvin, because he's resorted to grounding the, uh, grounding salvation rather in an absolute decree of God, uh, by the way, which would be 
completely and utterly unknown to us. <laughs> and that's your point. Uh, and that's because it's a degree, a decree rather, that would exist in the imminent Trinity. And that's all he says about it. He does, and because he's thinking of God in terms of power, um, that absolute decree would be infinitely removed from us. You know, God is transcendent, and so would salvation be. Uh, how that works out, it, I mean, you can literally look at just how this works out in history to see how perverse it is. So that um, rather than life in the church being a sign of salvation or a witness of salvation, God's grace active in your life, or even the fruits that you bear. You know, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. Um, for Calvin, uh, you know, sometimes there's recourse to those notions, but ultimately you're still left in a position of you just don't know. Um, and so later, you know, in history, that works out that you get uh, a form of revivalism in the United States, that people are searching for these ecstatic experiences so hopefully they can know that they are one of the elect, which, by the way, Calvin wouldn't have bought. <laughs> so, but it, it's, it mm-hmm. pushes people uh, towards like a, a false mysticism, you could say, almost like a Gnostic type mysticism. Um, and that, I think that's what Bart says. Uh, this just can't be the case, that we can't have a conversation about salvation without grounding that conversation in Jesus. So he makes that turn, and so he's opening the section in the dogmatics. He just says, in its simplest and most comprehensive form, the dogma of predestination consists then in the assertion that the divine predestination is the election of Jesus Christ. But the concept of election has a double reference to the elector and to the elected. And so, too, the name of Jesus Christ has within itself the double reference. The one called by his name is both very God and very man. Now, uh, I want to take a minute to, what does he mean there? The concept of election has a double reference, uh, and so too does the name. Well, think about what is Jesus' name. Jesus, Yeshua, uh, God saves. Uh, Christ is the anointed or the chosen one. And so he literally means that in the name Jesus Christ, you have this principle of both the saved and the elected, the chosen and the, the one who saves. So in Jesus, you have these two mm-hmm. ideas brought together. And he says, this is his very name, so that it should be obvious to us, in other words. and um, The election is the saving. Uh, yes, yeah. In the yes. name. So what this is going to bring in, uh, which I don't think we need to be uncomfortable with, is a strong universalism. And I don't mean universalism in the sense of we now know that everybody's eternal destiny is going to be that of, uh, you know, a blissful eternity with God or anything like that. But there is a strong universalism in the sense that Jesus Christ has saved and everything, period. Um, but of course, you have to remember for Bart, salvation and justification, all of these words have a double meaning. And that is both destruction and salvation. How that works out uh, on an individual basis, I have no idea. And uh, Bart wouldn't admit <laughs> that he knew either. So it's we don't know what he meant. We don't know if he really was a universalist in the normative sense of the word or if he, w- if he wasn't because he would neither affirm nor deny. But I think there is an element yeah. of this that we really do see the cosmic uh, Christ and the cosmic ramifications of Jesus's saving work. Maybe a, a footnote there that Bart, you know, was sort of cornered by people as to whether he was a universalist and specifically what he meant. 
And he said, well, uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus describes the judgment scenes, notice that the uh, division between the sheep and the goats is always mm-hmm. among those who have heard. So if, yes. there, if hell is populated, it will be populated primarily by Christians. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and I think he was being. Yeah, I think he's being kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which he was capable. <laughs> he yeah. had a grand sense of humor. But what? Yeah, I, I drew you off your point, and that is that what is being predestined in Christ. You know, if you think of the cosmic, the picture of the cosmos itself, the creation itself. Uh, in any, I think he appeals there uh, to John chapter one, uh, mm-hmm. that here is creation itself predestined in uh, the one who is both creator and created. Yes, that's right. And so you, and a part of this double election is that you know, God is electing man by becoming human, but by being human, the God man, Jesus Christ is also electing God as his father so that uh, you have a, a you have a new type of double predestination i guess but you have a very strong sense that this election is one in which you have god identifying with humanity in a sense that humanity can all identify all of us humans can identify with christ in this election that now puts us into a direct relationship with uh, God the Father, or you could just say the Godhead, because that's Mark would say that. If you speak of one, you can speak of three. Uh-huh. So he believes in a consubstantiality among the Trinity. That there is a, and he he uh, works this out, and Bart is thoroughly scriptural in all of this. Uh, that just appeals again and again. He he seems to never make a point. Uh, and so one of the longest footnotes in this section is just a, a scriptural appeal showing the, 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 the father and the son then are completely in a shared relationship. That's right. So that this is another strength, and you point this out really well, and that's what you were saying uh, even earlier, that within Calvinism, you get a division in the Trinity. Uh, with the atonement primarily, but um, you would have this problem already occurring just in, in this doctrine of election. Because is how is it that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit elect some to be you know, saved in the sense of uh, salvation, uh, glorification, some to be damned, and then Jesus himself suffers the cross? Uh, how do you bring those two things together? How does that make sense? And so, in some sense, all that is left for Jesus' mission to accomplish is to soothe God's anger, for him to suffer the punishment that is in some way necessary. And that's particular to Calvin. Um, And I think that kind of division in the Trinity is problematic. And maybe, yeah, maybe that needs to be. I actually uh, wrote on this, uh, it came out this morning on my blog, that Mm -hmm. This is uh, actually, I I ran into this, first of all, in Jurgen Moltmann, who I didn't understand was being true to uh, the reformed understanding in describing in a very, and he appeals directly to Hegel, who I, you know, it's surprising the degree that Hegel is a good Lutheran. 
mm-hmm. but what what he's saying about uh, the death of Christ, Moltmann, that is, is that death in some sense is an absolute, but for God uh, to be fully God, he must take death and nothingness up into himself, which he does in the cross. Now that, you know, that's the Moltmann, but then you find that same form of thought in, in people who might, you know, people like John Stott, Ihard Marshall, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to talk about uh, that there is a division in the Trinity, you know, Christ's uh, cry of dereliction on the cross, you know, appealing for God's presence. And then uh, Stott says, but God hid his face. God turned his back on the sun, though the sun seeks his presence to maintain his own integrity he has to turn his back. I heard Marshall says that there is an eternal, you know, that it is a kind of eternal punishment. And this, of course, works itself out. This, by the way, is not just, you get this in in uh, people in our movement like Jack Cottrell and others. They're going to talk about Christ bearing an eternal punishment on the cross and so you get an absolute division in the persons of the Trinity between the Father and the Son, which not only ends up being, you know, Estad is a theologian enough to understand that this is an orthodox, and he says, well, this is just a paradox, but, but what mm-hmm. I would say, no, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's nonsense. And uh, that it's clearly not orthodox in terms of Trinitarianism, but then, too, what it serves to do is to reify death and nothingness as if they are on an order ontologically with the being of the Trinity. And that is, I think, the great, you know, the the, the travesty that you get in penal substitution Mm-hmm. Uh, that that the same then failing, uh, the same division, strangely is there perhaps in the doctrine of predestination, when you have the Son simply the, as the object of the predestination. And I think mm-hmm. that's where you were going with this. Yes. So that Bart's going to make a, a very interesting move, and one that I think uh, needs to be qualified, but I, I think that he does as well. I mean, we have to remember we're dealing with 20 pages of a 8,000-page work. Um, and that is that he says, Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. And I think simply with that affirmation, he, ha- he is trying, at least, or he's making an attempt to overcome the disunity of the Trinity that is there in just classic Calvinism, as I think you just demonstrated. So he says, I don't mean merely in the sense that Jesus Christ is in the beginning because God foreknew, but rather that the Son of God in his oneness with the Son of Man as foreordained from all eternity and the universe which was created in universal history, which was willed for the sake of the oneness in their communion with God as foreordained from all eternity. Now, the qualification would have to be that, of course, uh, it is not necessary that God create, uh, in, as, in as much as Jesus has created a created communication of God's grace, the the incarnation in that sense, uh, or or rather, the 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 fact that the incarnation is a created communication is not necessary. 
But now notice also Bart says, not at first he doesn't say from all eternity, he says from the beginning. And I think that that's what we can affirm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Bart's move here is to say that in the beginning, God created, this is John chapter one, of course, that Jesus Christ was in the beginning when God created. So that with creation, there is this uh, created communication of God's grace that is the predestined decree. Now, that's a very interesting move. So that Bart has now reconciled the cross and creation together, or rather, you could say the incarnation is probably a better way of saying that. Bart has now brought together creation and the incarnation. And this then will line up quite nicely with what the early church teaches that Jesus Christ is the first real human being, that what's happening in Jesus Christ isn't just an act of salvation, but it's even uh, more so a robust act of creation, that salvation occurs because we are sinners and we have misrelated to God, but the incarnation occurs because we need God to become incarnate, to show us, to teach us, and to uh, transform us into being fully human. And I think that's Bart's ultimate point here. And in that sense, uh, there's a nice shift in what he's doing. And by the way, the next volume, not the next volume, but volume uh, three and four have to deal with creation and then redemption. I could. uh, There's a a nice shift. Go ahead. I could imagine someone raising a question, and maybe you don't want me to raise it here, of of running down how it is that you can have uh, Jesus Christ uh, before the incarnation. Yes. And so that's what I was trying to distinguish. Uh, and maybe I did it too quickly in the sense that if you say Jesus Christ is necessary to who God is, then you have a problem because you're saying that in some way it's creation fulfills who God is. But Bart will, uh, later on, he affirms divine simplicity. So that's not what he means. Uh, I think the distinction being Jesus Christ was in the beginning, beginning referring to time being created as well. Uh, So that, and I think this is all a rift off of John chapter one, the prologue of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. uh, So on that um, Bart is interpreting John to be saying that in the beginning was the word and the word that became flesh was in the beginning in the sense that the pre, the determined, the, uh, predestination or the predestined decree of God is one that Jesus has been chosen as the completion of creation. So that we would expect the first human being to, to show up at the beginning of time. Or maybe we could even figure out that perhaps the first human beings show up at the end of time if you think of a process of evolution. But actually what Bart is saying is the case is that the first human being shows up right in the middle of time so that we are uplifted and transformed and being transformed. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it's also appropriate to say that because God uh, freely chose to create, and that inasmuch as he has taken into himself the, the human nature of who Jesus is, that humanity has now been elevated or lifted up to an eternal status. But again, that's a created status. So it, we don't ever become as God is in and of himself, but we do become like God. And I, I think that Bart is distilling here the thoughts of the early church. 
Because in Irenaeus, you have the doctrine of recapitulation being essentially that Jesus as the new Adam is new humanity or real humanity. And he's recapitulating human history in himself, redeeming it, but also uh, setting it again on its original or intended uh, trajectory towards becoming like God. Which is certainly there in Romans 5 and that you have the first Adam and and then the, uh, Paul pictures the second Adam in some way as accomplishing what the first Adam failed to accomplish. Uh, that uh, I think that's uh, that Irenaeus's uh, picture of the model of Christ, or, or the model that you know that that here is the true man, the true human, in whom we are all to be found, and that there is that sense then of of humanity uh arriving at then the the whole point of that humanity in its fullness was there in Christ from the beginning and that then is the 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 sense of of predestination yes and so not even in the sense that adam failed to achieve something but rather that adam always needed christ to become human so that Jesus' the work of the incarnation isn't only directed towards overcoming sin, death, and evil, mm-hmm. in as much as sin, death, and evil is really a type of absence because of a corruption of the good and a misrelation to God. That's being taken care of sort of as a side note in the incarnation as, uh, you know, really completing creation or it, c- completing creation in a sense that it's an action that's going to be ongoing. And maybe that's what's missing in Calvinism. Oh yeah, absolutely. Is that it's that that uh, the Christ is all used up in a kind of uh, that must be a blasphemous way of talking about it in dealing with sin. Uh, that well, no, actually, that that in other words, redemption becomes a kind of uh, negation of a negation. But what we have. In, in this understanding is no that the the that sin uh is certainly dealt with but there is this positive aspect to salvation that was always in uh part uh, meant to be as part of creation yes yeah i think that's right and so bard is reasserting that which is a very different understanding uh, that uh, of i mean that this is the universality again in Christianity, it is the cosmic aspect of Christianity uh, in, in its orthodox understanding that uh, it was it, uh, it, it always included all of creation. Yes, yeah, and so um, I, this is what's it's just so strong about what Bart is saying here, and this is in the sense that he is uh, abandoning a decretum absolutum, as he says. Because he's saying so much depends upon our acknowledgement of the Son, of the Son of God as the subject of this predestination, because it is only in the Son that it is revealed to us as the predestination of God, and therefore of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Because it is only as we believe in the Son that we can also believe in the Father and the Holy Spirit, and therefore in the divine election. So, and of course for Mark, what's being revealed to us isn't just a message about God, but it is God himself. And you made the point uh, last week when we were talking about this, that uh, what happens sometimes 
in uh, strong Calvinism or even in a reaction against Calvinism is that we think of revelation in terms of just telling us about a salvation that we already have. Mm -hmm. But actually what Bart is saying is that the event of revelation is our salvation because it is the event of us being elected in Christ and realizing that, that we are entering into salvation so that the two aren't separate. Yeah, that, that uh, again, this is certainly there in Calvinism, but it just gets all through Protestantism that salvation then seems to in some way be confined. You know, I actually had a professor that literally spells this out in, in a book on on the Bible and inspiration. He, he says, well, what if we had the death of Christ and we had, the, you know, all of that, but then we ha- had no revelation about it. That is, he separates the works of salvation as if they could be separated from revelation. And what you're getting here, I think, is a return to the idea that, no, salvation is inherently revelation, and revelation is inherent to salvation. Now, I, you know, that I think that that doesn't, that, that just, sends off sparks in a lot of directions, but to my mind then, uh, apart from, and and not to confine revelation here to simply some intellectual knowing, but not to exclude that either, but uh, that in some way, if uh, our our failing is a failing, uh, you know, in terms of a lie or a deception, then we could understand how salvation would necessarily be an overcoming of that lie or deception uh, that it that would be linked to revelation. That is, the truth of Christ is a truth uh, that by necessity is equated. The truth will set you free uh, because we are bound by a lie. And I think that that you're getting this in Bart's equating of revelation and salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so have I overstated it? No, I don't think so. So the, I don't think I'm even saying anything different than you are, but to bring out a few uh, points that I think are latent in what you were saying is that the truth isn't an intellectual truth because it's a truth of ontology, which would then also uh, envelop what we think about things. So that if, and this is another move that's happening um, in the 20th century, uh, that's a recapturing of a previous way of thinking about things, is that our epistemology is actually always grounded in an ontology. So that you can have a a construct, uh, and this is something that you always bring up, we can construct for ourselves a reality that is grounded in uh, a lie. In other words, it doesn't actually correspond to the way that things are. Um, but what we're getting in Bart is that uh, you don't know God apart from being in right relationship to God. You don't. Uh, you might know things about God, but you don't know God. And he's making that distinction so that it's not just a message about God that we're searching for, but it's uh, God himself revealed to us so that we might participate in him. And that is our salvation. Uh, and that's the huge shift. Uh, you said that beautifully. Yeah, that, that sin is... Uh, uh, making an, our, our epistemology, imagining that we can know our way to being, that we would make our uh, uh, knowing epistemology a mode of ontology. Um, and what 
what you're getting in BART is the picture. Well, no, actually, knowing does not float free. The truth of Christ does not float free from, you know, knowing is already grounded in this larger in, in ontology. Mm-hmm. So I think that at this point we can uh, start to conclude, and what we can say about Bart is that in one sense he's true to a reformed trajectory in the sense that he sees the doctrine of the election as being key. And But where, of course, he's going to change all of that up is by saying that as Christ is both the one electing as the, and is the one elected, the, the doctrine of the election doesn't really have anything to do with an absolute decree from uh, before time um, about who is saved and who is damned or anything like that. It's not that sort of mystery, but rather the mystery is that we now know we have been chosen by God's yes and his no, that we would essentially all I mean by that, is, what I think Bart means by that is the equivalent to what Paul says in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and there's no longer I who live, but Christ within me. That something is, there's a negation of something that is false. There's an affirmation of what is true. We're recreated and transformed in the image of Christ. That's sustained. And then the the mystery, or the, the part of this that is still mysterion, is that we now grow into being like God. And this is the act of eternity. And so there's no limits or parameters on that. Uh, a, a beautiful doctrine in which uh, predestination, you know, I think that predestination uh, it, it has, as we've gotten it in Calvinism, but not just Calvinism. I think we, the, 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 again, I think we all have been kind of Calvinist. It's an oppressive doctrine, mm-hmm. uh, literally mentally oppressive. Uh, that there have been studies done. You know, I, I mean, the the kind of religious extremism that you get in people pursuing an ecstatic experience in an attempt to affirm or confirm their salvation and otherwise feeling somehow damned or not part of the elect, literally, I mean, creates an angst that has put mm-hmm. people in the in, a, in asylums. Uh, that what, but what you're describing then is this beautiful picture in which uh, the, the surety of what God is doing in Christ is completely available to us. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I hope that, our brief discussion about Karl Barth, any discussion about Barth's going to be brief, considering how much that he wrote uh, is worthwhile. It'll maybe point people to uh, picking up some of the church dogmatics and reading into what he went and digging into some of the key doctrines that Barth is reframing. If you want to read this, uh, I, you know, that it is, there's nothing uh, overly, what is it? It's from 101 and, volume two chapter two and it's only about 20 pages and he lays this out uh you know and, and the brilliance of bart just shines through i think in these pages mm-hmm. that you know that a uh, bart is uh, that that you always wonder where somebody like this where do they come from uh but mm-hmm. god has given the to the church i think these uh the the people with brilliance and insight and 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 to neglect Carl Barth on this topic, I think, would be to, to miss, I think he has key insight in, into this New Testament doctrine that has been obscured, um, and I think, throughout Protestantism, uh, 
and that he uh, uh, he's recovered it here in these pages. So I recommend it. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be good. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. As, as always, as always.